Hello and welcome to episode 66 of Herpetological Highlights. I'm Tom Major, co-hosting with me is Ben Marshall, and today we are doing a Patreon episode for Alex Santiago. So thanks a lot, Alex, for picking the topic today. And that topic is detection methods. So mm. detecting cryptic animals, which is a bracket I feel pretty much all herpetofauna fall into, with a few exceptions. I don't think iguanas are that cryptic, for example. Well, if they weren't that cryptic, they would be very easy to get rid of in general, right? But the issue is, okay, you can find some when they're at high densities. You try and find them when they're at low densities. Then it starts True. getting tricky. That's, and and in yeah. that statement, you've probably neatly summarized a lot of what we'll be talking about today. Um, yeah, so detection is like a constant issue. We've talked about it numerous times. Essentially... When you go out to look for animals, you're not going to see them all. And trying to work out exactly how many from a certain population you're not going to see or how often you're not going to see them is a kind of key focus in the ecological study of reptiles and amphibians. Yeah, because basically you you're, you need to get an estimate of how many animals you didn't see. Because there's, there's sort of two aspects. to You go out in the field and... Let's say you go to somewhere that you know that there's an animal. You've only got a certain percentage chance of actually seeing it, right? Even though you know it's there. Maybe you'd seen it there previously. It's got to be in this area, but you're not guaranteed to find it. And if you don't account for that, what you end up doing is underestimating how many animals there actually are. If you only count the ones that you that you see. You need, you need to understand how... Basically how different your observations are from the reality on the ground. Yeah, one way I like to think of it is that you only really see the animals which are failures because any animal that you spot, well, with the exception of like, well, there's a few exceptions really, but to most animals, <laughs> we are predators, right? So yeah, or at least snake, scary. Exactly. So every snake I see perceives me as about to tear it. I was going to say limb from limb, but not limb from limb. Tail from head. Exactly. Tail from head. And, you know, if you catch that snake, that snake's gone done goofed because as far as it's concerned, it's being predated. So if you imagine you're really only seeing the ones which fail to avoid predation. So that really tells you that there's no way you're going to be able to spot them all because no predator is 100% efficient. So you're mm. kind of trying to work out ways in which to make up for that lack of being able to spot them. And uh, yeah, we've got a couple of papers which investigate this in different ways um one is for the classic invasive brown tree snake and the other one is for some pretty nifty little tortoises so should we get into the first paper yeah i think so yeah 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 let's go okay so this is bobak nafus yakal adams and reed 2020 use of visual surveys and radio telemetry reveals sources of detection bias for a cryptic snake at low densities published in ecosphere and it's this year. Yeah. Um, this is quite an interesting paper because they're basically getting at... The nice thing with, with the brown tree snake situation is is there's been a lot of work done on them. So they have a lot of... Uh, perhaps not freedom, but certainly options when it comes to working things like this out. You know, they've been looking at them for a long time. They've got a good idea of 
things that can bias observations, they've got a good stable plot that they're studying these animals across, a lot of background knowledge. Yeah. So mm, things like this, yeah, tend to be a little bit easier. Yeah, they know all sorts of stuff about those brown tree snakes. We did that paper, didn't we, where they fed them. Yes. And then yes, the supplementary watched to see what they did. One. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was and fantastic. I really enjoyed that paper. Yeah, when they eat, they just chill for like, was it about four days on average? Uh, I think Two it was seven days of like lower activity, but after four or five, it started sort of heading towards normality again. Yeah. 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 They start wiggling around after four days and then back to normal. Yeah. After a week, maybe. Yeah, which is really interesting. Um, so, yeah, we've talked about them before, the brown tree snakes on Guam. If you've ever read a biology textbook in the last 20 years, you'll have heard of them too. Um, irregularis, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, they are the sort of poster child for invasive snakes worldwide. Mm. Um, yeah, they got introduced to Guam after World War Two with, sh- with um, some shipping or machinery. Basically, the Allies gone done goofed let the snake into Guam and then it ate everything which was not good and like 15 species have gone extinct um, birds predominantly and uh, yeah the environment on Guam is forever defined by tons yeah. of snakes basically yeah. <laughs> um, which does make it a very good test bed like I was saying it, it, it's a good scenario to, to explore these sorts of things because you're working with a species that's probably actually at a higher density than uh, yeah. other locations so it just makes it easier to find animals to estimate things with mm. um, yeah and despite the fact they're an invasive species um these brown tree snakes they're native to australia and like papua and it's important to know that although they're invasive on guam they're actually still awesome animals and they're super oh, cool yeah. looking and uh, yeah, they shouldn't be vilified just for being non-native. They just arrived on this island where there was easy pickings. The birds just ignored them until they consumed them. Oh, um, why? It wasn't. It wasn't. So, the, it wasn't the snake's fault. They didn't not ask being to spiteful. get dumped on Guam. No. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so now there's kind of these management objectives of, of uh, brown tree snakes, or management objectives for brown tree snakes. The brown tree snakes themselves don't have any management objectives, but well, not that we're yeah. aware of. No, I mean, maybe they're just trying to... Okay, phase one, exterminate the birds. <laughs> but yeah, so they're trying to stop this snake now traveling to other islands. And the reason they're doing all this work on their density is predominantly because if there are snakes at low densities on other islands, they want to be able to find them or at least know how difficult it is to find them. So they can anticipate, you know, if we suspect that a snake has been introduced by accident, how many hours do we have to spend searching for it before we find it? And yeah. um and, and to be confident, if you do a survey and you find those snakes, you can be confident that that survey was actually, there are no snakes, as opposed to, there are snakes, but you failed to find them or detect them. Yeah. Which is an important distinction, because one suggests, okay, you've got to put in more effort. The other is, good job, let's move on to the next location. Yeah, yeah. And so they talk in this paper about, obviously, we're talking about detection, which is the finding of the animals, and that is imperfect. So as we've discussed, you don't always see everything that's there. And there's different reasons why you might not see the animal. So this lack of detection can either be because the person looking for the animal just walked past it, which is something which happens to 
everyone once in a while, no matter how good of a snake looker you are. I would suggest that it happens to people more frequently than it doesn't happen to people. Yeah, that's actually definitely true. Uh, right. <laughs> I, I suppose I'm just thinking of times where I've like passed a snake or someone else I'm with has passed a snake and I've spotted it. But actually, most times we probably just both passed it. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it can either be because they didn't get spotted by the human observer or it can be because the snake's not available to be spotted. So an example of that would be if it's underwater or in the case of a brown tree snake in a log hollow high up a tree or wrapped in some leaves where it's out of sight. Um, or for said. Or for Soro, yeah. yeah. Heidi Hole. Um, holes, you know, pretty popular amongst reptiles and amphibians as places to hide. Uh, and yeah, you only really see the animals that fail, like I said earlier. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, the aim of this study, look at detection availability during visual surveys, specifically focusing on perch heights, microhabitats, etc. So where can snakes be seen and where can't they be seen? And as you said, Ben, they did this in a fenced population where there's known sort of low density. Um, that's because they dropped a load of poisoned mice and most of the snakes seem to have eaten the mice and, well, died because that's what happens. Um, which is mad in of itself, which I think we've talked about briefly on the podcast before, but they dropped these mice poisoned with, what is it? acetinomorphin something along those lines something along some, those lines yeah some horrible chemical which basically yeah, makes the snakes get dead um but as a result of doing this there's low density of snakes in this enclosure and so the experiment was they had 20 telemetered snakes so snakes with radio transmitters inside them which meant there was a known population uh which was equivalent to around 0.4 per hectare and I mean, do when you they were gonna, remote, how uh, do people know how how big a hectare is? Uh, it's a hundred meters by hundred meters, isn't it? Yeah, uh, people people are going to be happy with the metric system when it's converted into meters, right? <laughs> yeah, I think you're probably right to say that. Yeah, so yeah, one hundred by one hundred meter. Yeah, because I feel like hectares don't come up very frequently in everyday life, but meters. I mean, a hundred meters. Everybody knows how far to sprint. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, you're yeah. right. Why is it? Yeah, hectares are still all the rage, aren't they? Well, well, hectares are good because they're a metric uh, measurement that isn't a square kilometre, which would be the next step up. And square kilometres are just ridiculous to use when you're talking about like snake ranges or, or snake density or something like that. Uh, but what you do see come up every now and again is acres. And... I have I I cannot remember how big an acre is, but I can tell you that it isn't metric and it's confusing. Yeah, whenever someone's like, "Oh yeah, we got land, four acres," I'm like, "Well, that must that sounds like a bit of land you've <laughs> got there." <laughs> that surely sounds like land. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. In my mind's eye, that's an area of land of indeterminate size. <laughs> <laughs> I'm imagining so, yeah. all sorts of sizes yeah. simultaneously. Just nodding. So yeah, basically they'd have all these tracked snakes and before the survey teams went out and walked along this transect, which is just a line through the forest, they would find out where the snakes were and then the people would walk through and see if they could also spot them. Right, so, so but what's what's critical to note there is that the visual survey team and the radio tracking team are two different sets of people. Yes. So you've you've got two people looking two groups looking for the same snake. One has the advantage of radio telemetry. The other one's just doing a standard survey, 
looking for brown tree snakes. Yes. And so what they would do is they'd work out, they basically had a buffer around, because they did some little tests about how far away people could spot a snake from, and they created this imaginary zone around the path that the surveyors were going to walk of five metres each side, and I think five metres into the trees up above them. And Yeah, I'm not sure if it was actually that far. I feel like it might have been three metres up into the trees. That seems quite generous, five metres. Oh, therefore we defined detection buffer as a rectangular cuboid centred on the transect with a width of 12.5 metres, 5 metres on either side plus 2.5 metres transect width. We chose a maximum vertical limit of 15 metres, which was the maximum height of any observed telemetered snake. Does that mean they're expecting them to spot them at 15 metres high? Well, that means that they did spot them at 15 metres high and then they went back and... So their analysis was based on some of the results that they obtained, with the assumption the the assumption that you could not stub basic well, it's a soft assumption that you wouldn't spot a snake above fifteen meters. That's so high up. That's crazy high up. But they did spot a snake at fifteen meters, so it is backed up by that. A human being spotted a snake fifteen meters in a tree. That's what it says. Which which that's was the maximum astounding. height of any observed telemetered snake. But that's a telemetered snake. Yes, but it's an observed telemetered snake, so they must have been able to see it. So they ha- they had the radio tracking kit to find that snake. Uh, potentially. No one just walked into the woods, looked up, and was like, "There's a snake, fifteen meters away." Oh, it's doubtful, isn't it? But the point is yeah. that it was visual, it was visible, so yeah, okay. it could have been spotted. It's just fifteen meters, like you say, is yeah, good luck. Yeah. Okay. So they've got these people who are going into the woods and they're looking for snakes and the other sneaky team knows where they all are. And yeah, the naive team was going out walking the transect. And while they were doing this, there was 87 possible snakes in the whole time they were doing this that could be seen according to the rules we've just outlined. So they were near enough to the transect that the naive survey team could spot them. And in those Wait, 87 80... potential encounters... Oh, 87 potential... Yeah, sorry, you said 87 potential snakes. There's, there was 87 opportunities for the 20 telemetered snakes to be seen. Yeah. Yep, 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 yep. Yes. And so, yeah, there wasn't 87 snakes. But of those 87 opportunities where the people were walking close enough that they were judged to be able to see the snake, only one was actually spotted mm. one time. And that required 323 survey hours before that detection was actually achieved. So that's a hell of a long time. And they estimate that if encounter rates remained consistent across time and these survey teams used the same transects spacing, it would take 6,460 survey hours to detect all 20 of those telemetered snakes. Yeah. Could take a little bit less, could take a little bit more, but rough estimate... That's a long time. What does that translate into days? It's 269 days. Whoa. That's nearly, well, it's two thirds of a year. Yeah, 38 weeks. Dang. <laughs> so if you spend 38 weeks walking around Solid. the woods, nonstop, Solid. no rest. Yeah. And I mean, that's only in the times where the snakes would be active. So you can actually only do that of an evening. Um, yeah, that's how long okay, it takes so you, you to find. Yeah, you've got an evening, snakes. so that's what, like a quarter of a day, if we're if we're generous. 
So basically, your times in your your thirty eight. What did you say? Thirty eight. I said thirty eight weeks. Thirty eight weeks by four. It's like what one hundred and twenty weeks. I mean, it's essentially it's going to take multiple years to find twenty snakes. It's madness. With you know reasonable, reasonably consistent survey effort. Yeah. And okay, so basically, snakes are super hard to find, and yeah, you're at that density. Yeah, and. To find a, a, you know, that is to find every single snake of a population of 20 in a hectare. Well, no, of multiple hectares, isn't it? 0.4 snakes per hectare. Yeah. I don't know if snakes largely exist in greater densities or lower densities than that. That's a little bit tricky to answer because of how hard it is to calculate. (laughs) Yeah, it seems possible, but then also it seems like, I don't know. Your perception of how many are around is probably massively warped by how few you see. So it's like, which came yeah. first, the density or the detection probability? <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. I mean, it, I reckon it's probably massively variable for snakes. Something like yeah. uh, a smaller viper could be way higher density. Something, I don't know, much bulkier and bigger and slower to reproduce. Maybe maybe much worse. Who knows? Mm. Yeah. And so some things that differed between the sightings from radio telemetry as compared to sightings from people just walking around. Um, the average vertical height was greater for telemetry snake locations. So on average, when people went radio tracking, the snake was on average 2.6 meters high. While for people just going out looking, the average snake they saw was about two meters high. So... Basically, human beings are not as good at spotting snakes higher up as people who know where the snakes are through radio telemetry, which is kind of what you'd expect. I mean, it two meters high sense. Yeah. is eye height for the average human or just above. Um, so, yeah, you know, you can see things that are directly in front of your eyes, but then you can see things that aren't directly in front of your eyes. Mm. That, that's a good finding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but the, the, I think the point is, it's yes, that makes a lot of sense that it's almost like... Yeah, of course, it's harder to see him further up. But what's so dramatic about this paper doing is it's showing the extent of that bias. And it's not just because snakes are generally hard to see, it's because they are spending a good amount of time out of visible range. Yeah. So the, yeah. The, there's there's two aspects. It's, you know, where the animals are as well as biases to do with, with human perception. And those two are sort of conflating to make this pretty dramatic difference yeah yeah also combining combining to make that difference yeah and there were some times where snakes were especially difficult to see they're really hard to spot if they are in vegetation less than a meter high so when they're in sort of ferns on the ground i mean they're just hidden from view they're pretty much unavailable um and like we said one to two meters off the ground is the best place to see them well, we said two meters, but one to two meters is like the key window where you're yeah. most likely to see them. Um, and snakes are also easier to spot when they're on broadleaf plants. So, you know, general sort of tree, your classic tree plants. And that's compared to ferns, which we've already said, and also pandanus trees, which are these like weird spiky guys that have big bushels of leaves on the end of stalks. Mm. if they're inside those i remember we talked about those when we talked about the feeding paper um 
the brown tree snakes they love just curling up in the leaves of those plants and when they're in there without destructively taking apart the trees you can't find them and one thing they actually said was that if there's brown tree snakes or they're suspected to be brown tree snakes in an area and they're not meant to be there actually taking apart these pandanus trees might be your best chance of finding them yeah i mean that's that's essentially the the key point of this uh vegetation type impacting detection rate is if you do actually want to find them and be confident that they're not there you're going to have to put extra effort into searching types of vegetation that you know ordinary visual surveys are going to miss them on so that is a that is a big deal that's a quite a key finding there yeah and this pandanus is actually quite uncommon in guam but the snakes do seem to really like it and they think it's probably because they hold moisture in the leaves and it also allows them an opportunity to bask because the bushels of leaves are quite high up. They can move to the edge, get some sun and potentially lizards are hanging around inside them as well. So it might be that there's hunting opportunities. And um, yeah, like I said, you might have to take these apart. Um, they also compared uh, visual surveys with radio telemetry data points to see mm. which could best estimate the areas of high density or high use by the snakes so comparing whether or not they could tell via visual surveying which areas the snakes preferred using yeah i'm pretty concerned about the methods with those two. Oh to yeah be, go on. to be brutally honest yeah one i think there's some sort of weird uh plotting error in uh c of figure two specifically the bottom left uh, core area uh, appears to it, it looks like it's been chopped out and that looks like a very strange looking uh, kernel density thing the, but the real issue I find with it is they're comparing different kernel density estimates and the way they've estimated the kernel density utilization distribution has used different smoothing parameters so I wonder how comparable they actually are because they essentially they just say that they use the default values in the kernel density tool of ArcGIS which I'm not entirely positive what the default values are I presume that they're not just a set number I presume that it changes depending on the data set uh, and I presume that it's that it's like a, a reference smoothing factor the issue with that is it can be quite sensitive to data quantity and so I wonder whether that should have been examined in two different ways. Um, potentially by, I don't know, maybe maybe by some sort of like point process analysis instead of something like a kernel density estimate. And if you were doing a kernel density estimate, I think you'd need to examine the impact of smoothing on how they compared. Basically, smoothing's uh, high smoothing factor. You get very large uh, utilization distributions that are sort of more smoothed out, low number, tighter. Utilization distributions, what does that mean? Uh, it's like a, uh, imagine a heat map. Yes. Areas with higher values, more likely that a snake was there. Areas with lower values, less likely a snake was there. Uh, right you know, grid by grid heat map. But it's generated by interpolating where those locations, you know, the recorded locations are. So yeah, think of it just as, it's just a heat map. It's a way of calculating a heat map. And so what you're saying is the estimators that they used for the two different kinds of heat map 
the one based on the visual surveys and the one based on the radio telemetry data points were quite likely fundamentally different and therefore shouldn't be compared in the way they've compared them. I'm certainly by the way the methods are described, I'm not positive they are comparable. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. This is why it's good to have a spatial ecologist about. Well, this is the thing. This is, I mean, for all I know, yes, they're absolutely comparable. Yes, it's worked fine. Yes, those results are absolutely spot on. All I'm really getting at is that from the method description, it's hard to work out what it is. I also tried, I, you know, I was going to do my due, due diligence here. Um, they've got a link to the full data set. And, oh, yeah, I'll just quickly slap it together. See. Um, the link's broken, <laughs> so I couldn't oh. get access to the data set, <laughs> which is a real shame. Um, I, I sent an email saying, "Hey, can I can I have a look?" Because this is a this is a cool data set in general. The whole you know the two the two different ways of collecting the data and the comparison really really neat. So I wanted to get a closer look anyway, just out of you know personal interest. If they get back and I can take a little look, I'll bring it up in a few episodes time and and update people. But Initially, I feel like there's a little bit of ambiguity in the methods that makes it sort of difficult for me to be confident in that comparison. Because mm. just eyeballing the things, I mean, they look pretty similar to me in they terms of where the centres well. are. Yeah, and I, yeah, they're yeah. saying they're different, and I have a feeling that the difference largely comes from the the the, the extent. Yeah, they really do. Like, they really do look fundamentally similar. Like, yeah, there's. Yeah, the gaps, the areas which are of low use seem to kind of quite strongly overlap. I don't know. That's, that's, why, that's why I was sort of wanting to look at the data it's, it, itself because, I mean, that would be a sort of simple thing to rerun with the same smoothing parameter and, and get an answer for. So it, I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm not saying they're wrong at all. I'm just saying I don't know. Okay, cool. Well, um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll keep that in the back of our minds and... Yeah, hopefully you'll get a hold of that data and you can uh, double check. So, yeah. um, basically, I think certainly what the f- main finding is from the experiment they did with the radio-tagged snakes and the people looking for them, I mean, it, basically what they found out is it's really, really hard to find snakes if you're just looking for them. Yeah, exceptionally hard. And they put in an exceptional number of hours to find these snakes and to to find this finding, which is massively, massively useful for people well, designing other studies as well. Because, I mean, OK, you're working with different species with different uh, natural histories that may modify that detection probability. But, you know, roughly, you know, it's a good estimate to, to start from 100 percent. Really, really yeah. useful. And done in a really complete way. Yeah. Just don't go out and expect to find all the snakes because it's not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, if you if you are failing to account for imperfect detection, your estimates are going to be off. And I think this paper does a really good uh job of illustrating just how dramatic it could be if you don't uh if you don't at least try and uh account for it. Yeah, and if you don't find all the snakes, don't feel bad because no one can. No. So let's no. talk about tortoises. There's no, well, there's no logical segue here because yeah, snakes no, and there is there is a segue. There's absolutely a segue. People are having <laughs> a tough time finding these animals, right? Oh yes, yes, but yes. I see where he's going. Alone. We're not alone oh. in this struggle. We can segue. we can call in reinforcements from our four-legged friends. 
The pooches. Exactly. Bing, bring in the pooches. Okay, so you can introduce this one as I introduced the last one. Yes, let me bring it up. <laughs> so we have Boulinard, uh, Gerard, Rose, uh, Rosek, Bestnard, Caron, Beck, and Bonnet. Published in 2019, Excellent Performances of Dogs to Detect Cryptic Tortoises in Mediterranean Scrublands. Published in uh, Biodiversity and Conservation. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Herman's Tortoises. They're roaming Herman's. around, being difficult to find. But They look like rocks. They just look like rocks. Tortoises <laughs> look like rocks. I, I almost sat on one once. <laughs> Not a Herman's Tortoise, but... A uh, elongated tortoise. I thought it, you know, I was I was sitting next to a tree, leaning back, looking for. Saw this this rocks behind, sort of to my to my left beside me. Thought I'd put my hand on that, and then lo and behold, little tortoise face poked out of it. <laughs> wow! Yeah, and I was right on top of that thing. <laughs> when I was where you are in Thailand, I was out running, and I almost kicked one. I didn't. It just walked across the path in front of me. I barely noticed it. I had to like last minute jump out of the way. Obviously. Part of that was due to fear. Um, just <laughs> yeah, man, they'll eat, react. they'll eat anything. If you let them, yeah. they would... Oh. They're toe nibblers, I'm telling you that yeah, for free. Yeah, they'll tear you apart over the course uh, of weeks. <laughs> see, joking aside, though, they will eat meat. Like They do eat carrion. We've talked about that before, haven't oh, we? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And Don't leave a tortoise with a small child unattended because it'll, it'll eat it in a series of small bites over the course of many hours <laughs> so testudo hermani hermani the nominate subspecies of the herman's tortoise this one is found in the east there's also a west which doesn't make massive amounts of sense because i'm pretty sure the population is that the wrong way round because we're talking about the western extent of their range here. Are we? It looks like we're talking about the eastern extent of their range. Nah. Nah, nah, nah. They go, all the far, they go as far as Turkey. Well, that Turkey's further east. This study yeah, is I'm taking s- place in France. Exactly. So it's the western extent of their range. Yes. <laughs> you confused me. We got double confused. We got double confused. Yes. Okay. So... Basically, in my notes here, I've written this is the Eastern Hermans. But there's also Western Hermans. I suspect. Let's have You're a look. You're dealing with subspecies, and that was your initial folly. I know. I'm sorry. Okay, so here we have a map which is too small to see. Uh, oh, yes, Wikipedia. Okay. Right. So, yeah, Testudo Hermani Hermani is, in fact, the easternmost. And then you've got. Hercephagovinensis, which, mm, not sure about that one. And then further east, you've got Testudo Hermini Butleri. What do you mean, not sure about that one? Well, I don't think that everyone agrees to that taxonomical subspecies. Oh, right, Certainly, I see. On the IUCN page, it was like, this has not been proven. Basically, why are we even talking about subspecies? Who cares? I, it's I Testudo no Hermini. I brought it up. Then we got confused about what was east and what was west. I don't know why we can't just call it left and right. I've been lobbying for that for years. <laughs> and uh, yeah, anyway, going back to this tortoise, it's a bad creature. It's a little 
It's a bad creature. <laughs> it's a bad creature. It's they a have, bad they have, creature. They have failed to, <laughs> to gain <laughs> favour with my co-host here. <laughs> Out of all the tortoises of the world, this one, this Mediterranean tortoise, I hate somehow them. has gotten on your bad side. No, they're all right. They're medium-sized. We're getting back on the rails. They're medium-sized. Females are 15 to 18 centimetres, which is slightly larger than males of 14 to 15 centimetres. Uh, they live for over 30 years, which is a long time. And they take 10 to 12 years to reach maturity. Mm. But they lay very few eggs, only three to six eggs. Well, that's why is that important? It makes them vulnerable. Because, if exactly. you lose one that is, you know, nine years old... You've just wasted nine years of a tortoise bumming around eating stuff. It hasn't had a chance to reproduce and sort of support that population. So that yep. slow maturation and the sort of low uh, clutch size does make them very vulnerable. And uh, that is why they're endangered, just straight up. Yeah. And I mean, this tortoise is spread along the kind of entire south of Europe, basically. But we're talking specifically about the Mediterranean population and this study actually takes place in southern France. Mm. So this is the Western limit. But the Mediterranean as a whole faces a lot of pressure from humans. Um, habitats are being fragmented, lots of development, buildings, roads, people are setting fires. Uh, and often, as is the case here in the UK, there's lots of developments going on. And I mean, you know, thankfully there is a process by which environmental consultancies are expected to try and capture all the reptiles or at least the ones that are protected take them into their custody for a little while and then let them go somewhere else where they can actually continue to exist rather than just being crushed by bulldozers which as we've talked about on the podcast translocation it's kind of the lesser of two evils and sometimes it's only marginally less evil and in some cases yeah. it may actually be more evil but yeah. it's people are, you know they perceive that they're doing something and you know i could see a tortoise probably doing okay with translocation i don't know there's no i don't know of any papers that study that we've not looked at I, i've never actually specifically looked for i mean it. I've, i have seen data from translocated tortoises and stuff um have but you? i've okay. never seen anybody do the sort of survival aspect of it which is actually what you really care about you can infer some stuff from movement like weird erratic movements moving more as maybe uh you know, damaging their fitness or something. But at the end of the day, you do need those survival estimates to really be confident in what's happening. And I haven't seen that, but then I haven't read that widely on tortoises when it Nor comes to I. translocation. So mm. for all I know, it's been done. It's been done exceptionally well. Yeah, yeah. And so um, basically, tortoises are super hard to find because as we said, they're basically just rocks with legs and... They spend a lot of time in holes or covered under bushes. Um, so yeah, human beings just not the best at spotting them. But how bad are they? Well, enter dogs. So there's, <laughs> there's a great quote I can take from this paper which says, Dogs show a unique set of well-developed characteristics to improve <laughs> ecological surveys. They yep. display an extremely accurate sense of smell, elevated learning abilities, and a marked willingness to cooperate with humans. I, when is... I read that, the first thing that went through my head is, not all dogs. Yeah, not last all dogs. Point. Yeah, some dogs are little. Yeah, some dogs are cantankerous and 
they just don't show a marked willingness to cooperate in some <laughs> cases. <laughs> they have a marked willingness to not cooperate. Yeah, you could even say they were uncooperative. Yeah. Markedly the, uncooperative. The the thing is, these guys, they got dogs that were cooperative. They they got they breeds did. that were very, uh, that had been, they said had an innate uh, sort of ability to find stuff. I, I more, I feel like innate's a little bit funny, of way of phrasing it because these breeds have been bred to have those <laughs> characteristics. What did well, they have? They had Irish setters, <laughs> Munster and Brittany Spaniels and an Australian shepherd dog. Um, smelling dogs. Hmm? They're big time smelling dogs. Yeah, exactly. That they're, they're uh, if you were to in crufts, these are the gun dogs. Yeah. The and what's cool dogs. is this, I forget what they some call them, them now. I can't remember either. Crufts, though. What a show. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so they were either hunting dogs, so that's like the the setters and the spaniels, or they were truffle dogs, so they were actually used usually for going out and sniffing out truffles, and that was the Munster Spaniel and the Australian Shepherd. Um, and I love how they even had the dogs' names in the paper. So <laughs> I, wish they'd, I wish they'd explicitly said who was the best hunting dog. But anyway, so they had Gaia, Diva, Smarty, Kaline, Joy, and Hector. Hector being the only male dog on the squad, representing male kind. The rest are all female dogs. And yeah, they basically wanted to compare um, the performance of dogs and humans during field surveys. So which finds more tortoises? That was the first aspect of the study. And then the second bit was kind of very similar to what they did in Guam, where they had radio tracked tortoises. They they knew that there were at least this many tortoises in the environment. And then they let both the dogs and the humans go separately and see who found the most tortoises. Yeah, 60 minutes, five hectares. How many tortoises can you find? Yeah, it's really awesome. I think that's great. I mean, it's, it, it's a beautifully simple study conceptually. But massively important because if the dogs don't, like dog teams and trained <laughs> dogs are an expensive resource, you need to know whether they're worth the time and the money before you use them on mass. So, what Absolutely. what better way than just to pitch them side by side in a head to head battle? Well, exactly. There was one line in this which really made me laugh as well. It just made me think, like, maybe there was something dark going on. I hope I'm wrong, and I'm pretty sure I am wrong. But um, it says, because obviously dogs have jaws, right? They can bite stuff, and they don't want the dogs eating any tortoises that they might find. And these dogs weren't accustomed to finding tortoises, and some were hunting dogs, which presumably uh, do a bit of retrieval in their normal lives. Which involves a bit of nibbling. So there's this line in the paper which said, each dog was checked regarding potential harming behaviours, such as taking a tortoise in its jaws and received adequate education when necessary. <laughs> okay. Well, they, yeah, but later on, later on, there's a very explicit comment about how no tortoises were bitten by the dogs at there all. There is. But I can just so imagine one of the I, handlers being like, I'm just going to go around behind this wall and give my dog some education. <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> no, no, I thought, I know. No. I've, I, I'm sure how they could won't. You? How could you? No, you couldn't. Um, but yeah, basically they trained the dogs with tortoise shells or captive tortoises, which must have been really confused by what was going on. And um, yeah, they were basically like, here, mate, smell this. And then they'd go and hide it. 
and when the dog was interested or found the shell, it was rewarded either with food or, as it says in the paper, hugs. Yeah. Which is just adorable. Imagine well, that's, having that's employees. You treats. Yeah. You could pay your employees with hugs. The world would be a richer place. <laughs> uh, it depends what the treats are, though. Yeah, it would You get me those, like, be. little, little, like, bite sized Toblerone things? Oh, yeah. Nah, you can keep your hugs, mate. Or, um,. Yeah, the little mini dime bars that you can get. Yeah. I'll be sad. Delicious. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, they basically did all these things in France, had all these plots, dogs versus man, and then, um, yeah. So the first experiment was how many, in an area where they don't know how many tortoises there are, they compared how many tortoises human teams found versus dog teams. And to make it fair, it was always either one human versus one dog or two humans versus two dogs. Keep it even. And obviously the dogs were better at it. So on average, dogs detected one tortoise, while the humans detected half a tortoise. Yeah, no, just, not just even. Shut, yeah, not even. Point, a third three, of a tortoise. of a tortoise. Yeah. So dogs detected three times more tortoises per trial than humans. Um, what was interesting was that dogs find more adults and juveniles but they find tortoises in the same proportions. So say humans found two males, two females, two juveniles. The dogs would on average find six males, six females, six juveniles. Yeah. So there's well, not like a specific scent signature of a specific type of tortoise that dogs are better at finding. Which is great because you don't want to have your search method particularly biased towards a certain age class or sex. Absolutely then, not. Especially, especially if your goal you know, coming back to the, the context of this study, is to have a method that you can remove an entire population from an area that's going to get bulldozed. You don't want to leave behind all the little ones. Yeah, or all the females, for goodness yeah, sake. Oh, yeah, that would completely undermine the viability of your translocated population. Yeah. And the other interesting thing was that they found many more concealed tortoises. So over half of tortoises dogs found were over 80% hidden by bushes or in holes, while for humans that was only 31%. Mm. Um, and so, of course, that translates to a lot more tortoises. So dogs found 27 tortoises in 80% cover or more, while humans only found four, which presumably was just blind luck, because you don't see something if it's over 80% covered. And obviously dogs are using their nostrils, not their eyes, to search for things, while humans are just yep. glancing around. So, yeah. Basically, humans are rubbish compared to dogs. But that one of the reasons the dogs might actually be doing better is because they just covered way more distance. Oh, massively more distance. Yeah, what did yeah. we have? Something like an average of 1,600 metres compared to like 350 for humans. So Yeah, I mean, anyone just, who's ever taken a dog for a walk would have anticipated that, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, human walks down path, dog is running about mad as a hare off in the bushes. Sniffing things exactly. and looking for stuff. And it's no different when the dog is trained to hunt tortoises. Yeah, yeah. And then, so after they did that, they did the absolute detection experiment, which you've alluded to there. Um, dogs did more searching around. And yeah, during the first run in an environment where the humans knew there was... Basically, they had all these telemeter tortoises. 40 telemeter dogs... tortoises. That's right, yeah. And on the first run, the dogs found, on average, more than 75% of the radio tract tortoises. Um, and then on the second run through, the rest of the tortoises were found every time. So they were finding all the tortoises. 
Um, and actually, they actually were finding tortoises which weren't even part of the study. The humans didn't even know were there. They were just like, do you miss these tortoises, you idiot? Um, so, yeah, basically, you let the dogs go to try and find the tortoises and they find you bonus tortoises. That's how good they are. Um, yeah. Humans just weren't as good. They found three times less again. Um, so, yeah, humans are missing two thirds. Dogs are finding them all. And that, like you say, it's a problem. You can't translocate a population if you're only finding a small amount of them. You need to find them all. Um, mm. Because when they exist at like low densities and they're living for a long time, taking numbers out of the population is bad, bad, bad. Well, and that's that's the that's the kicker is if you're trying to do um, either a study, translocation, whatever, where you're working with low densities, the more you find and the more you translocate, the harder it is to find future tortoises. So you're always going to reach a scenario that you have to deal with low density and like infrequent detection. So you need something that that will find a tortoise not just by you know sort of coming across it because there are loads of tortoises but you need a method that can find a tortoise even if it's the last tortoise there and that is really really difficult for active survey usually just equates to doing uh loads and loads of surveys the the these dogs being able to find these telemeter tortoises at such a high rate on the first try is a fantastic sign that hey maybe do it five times maybe do it ten Something like that, you're going to be pretty confident that you've got all the tortoises there. Yeah, absolutely. Regardless of how much they're hiding in a hole, too. That's that's the other neat thing, is it's changing. So whereas, you know, the previous Deboback study, you had snakes that were essentially undetectable uh, if it was an observer, but detectable if they were telemetered. Dogs actually have a greater variety of tortoises they can find, too, because they're not just using their eyes. So it's a it's almost a double whammy. They're, they've got more available tortoises to find and they're better at finding tortoises. It, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, dogs better than humans at finding tortoises, which is a surprise to nobody. <laughs> Apart um, from the tortoises, because yeah, the... they would have been surprised. Next what? thing you know, dog was bearing down on them. <laughs> so uh, that's it, I reckon, for detectability. Yeah, I think so. Um I think they're both really cool studies with very cool findings, both uh, very useful for future work. Yeah. So, uh, Alex Santiago, hope you've enjoyed that special on detectability. And I reckon we can move on now to our species of the Bible. Which are difficult to detect by virtue of being small and arboreal. Oh, yeah. So this is by Wickramasinghe Vidanapithirana Vidanapathirana Pushpamal and Wickramasinghe 2020 A new species of dry calamus endemic to the rainforests of southwestern Sri Lanka published in Zootaxa Mm-hmm and uh, yeah, Dryocalamus, aka like you bridal say, snakes. Uh, yes, is it bridal or brindle? Bridal. Oh, I think it's. I it's think probably brindle. Brin- no, because brindle is like a, a color, isn't it? Yeah, it's bridal snake. Yeah. I don't know why I had brindle in my head. Glad we got to the bottom of that. Um, <laughs> and yeah, this is a genus which had six species. In South and Southeast Asia, 
they get them where you are, don't they, Ben? In Thailand, they do. We have what Davis Sonai and Subanulatus. Subanulatus is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah, I know it's Doctor Dar and Doctor Sue. Doctor Dar and Doctor Sue, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, in two thousand and nine, the team collected a carcass of a dry calamus resulting from a roadkill in central Sri Lanka. And they noticed that it differed from the other species thereabouts because it didn't have a preocular scale and a few other different things like 15 dorsal scale rows and a divided cloacal shield. And Mm. it looked different. It had a different colour pattern. It looked exciting and new. And it took a long time. Eight years later, they were actually able to collect an additional specimen and obtain sightings of several others. And following that, they've been able to collate this evidence and they now present this brand new species endemic to the southwestern rainforests of Sri Lanka. Yeah. Uh, So what are you talking about? You're talking about quite a slim snake that's around, what, 30 centimetres plus a tail of another 10 centimetres. So it's a pretty decent sized dry calamus, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's pretty reasonable. Yeah, man. I always yeah. think of them as like stripy bootlaces. They are. The, the thing is, though, even that snake being that long, it will look super small because they're so thin. Yeah, they are super slim, and they got quite yeah. a. Well, not even they haven't even got that bulkier head when you when you think about how slim they are, but they do have a distinct head. Certainly, this species. Yeah, and um, they are egg-eating specialists, which What's is that? Oophophagy. Oh, is it? Very nice. Isn't it? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, oophophage. Yeah, that's wicked. <laughs> um, and yeah, there's actually a really cool paper about another species called Dryocalama... Uh, sorry. Hmm. This is actually a lycodon. Hmm. Yes, well, there's a, there is a uh, thing with lycodon Dryocalamus, right? Like dry calamuses yeah. were lycodons, vice versa, and it's all just sort of a little bit, a little bit mixed at times. Yeah. Um, mm. And relatively recently, so. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not sure whether or not actually I might have got the wrong end of the stick here because it does say about uh, eggs, but then. <sighs> yeah. Dry calamus. Okay. Oh, okay. Dryocalamus exhibit a unique feeding behaviour, the diet consisting exclusively of eggs, in which it consumes only the egg embryo, emitting the egg shell. Ooh. Where, whereas Lycodon consumes whole eggs and also small reptiles. Hmm. Well, that goes against the paper which I've found from 2018. Yeah. Observations on the reproduction and feeding habit of a rare colubrid, the Indian bridal snake, Lycodon nympha. Um... Because that, that snake does what they describe Dryocalamus doing, where it basically, it's really cool. There's a sequence Wait, of you're, photos. Wait, you're, talk, you're talking about the paper that is cited as saying the opposite thing. Yes. Okay. Have we discovered a flaw in the plan? <laughs> well, that's highly odd. Um, what, basically, what's, the, what's what's the paper saying? What's what's the, pa- the lowdown? The, the paper has pictures of a species of lycodon, lycodon nympha, which I mean, you know, it looks the same as the species that we're talking about. I'll be honest with you, um, and it basically just 
gets the egg, forms a little curl with its body, puts the egg in that curl, or the egg is in that curl, and then it approaches with its head the other end of the egg. So it's basically cupping the egg with its body, and then it's got its mouth on the other end of the egg. And then it just basically rams its head into the egg. It's got special teeth on its upper and lower jaws. The lower jaws hold it. The upper teeth like stab into it. And it basically breaks the egg through pressure with its head and forces its head inside the egg. So it's inside the eggshell with a tiny little bit of egg where it's like broken in at the back of its mouth. And then it scoops out. You know, if you have a hard boiled egg, yep, you take the top off yep. and then you can eat, eat, eat the inside. Oh, sorry. Soft boiled egg I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Okay, Slight you know change. you've got. I, you know I when you've got. Sorry, soft... let me just go back and cook another egg. <laughs> sorry, you've ruined an egg. Yeah, all right. You can yeah, we're good. Put it. It didn't take us long. You know. It's okay, so, boiled, you... so. <laughs> you've got that soft boiled egg, yeah. Yeah. You take you take the top off it, right? Yep. Well, what and then you scoop the middle out with a spoon. Maybe after yeah. you've been dunking your soldiers. But I don't know. Forget I, about soldiers. I, I I usually just jam my head into the soft boiled. <laughs> <laughs> And that is the perfect analogy. Basically, what they do is they take the top off, but rather than taking it off, they just jam past it. And then they use their head as the spoon to scoop out the inside of the egg. Heroes. Also, I've worked out why there's this this uh, mismatch between what you're saying and the citation thing. Is oh, has it changed? They don't treat uh, Lycodon nympha as Lycodon. They say it's Dryocalamus nympha as... Have a look at the caption of figure eight. Distinct color morphs of Dryocalamus nympha. Aha. So that's where the difference is. They're sort of saying that Lycodon aren't doing that, but really that's because they're counting the snakes that do do that as Dryocalamus. Okay. So that's sort of, yeah, that makes sense, doesn't it? That's absolutely Wicked. fine. That's good because, yeah. Well, I'm going to call it Dryocalamus because I have nothing to go on except for the fact that I've just seen the way it eats an egg. And, uh, it seems to me like that would only be something which is found in dry calamus. <laughs> I think that's absolutely fine. And it's consistent with what this paper is using. So I think that's a relatively fair thing to go on. Mm. But regardless, they have this really cool behavior. And uh, if you go onto ResearchGate, you can actually look at the pictures of that snake doing that for completely free. And the text is free. And it's well worth it because every time a snake eats something in a bonkers way, I find it to be fundamentally curious and i think a lot of people who are listening will think the same so yeah. yeah any example of a snake not eating its prey whole yeah super interesting really cool so yeah it's a really nice little critter and presumably it does the same thing with eggs um what else can we say about it have we said what it's called i don't think we have have we, we haven't said what it's called and we haven't actually described its coloration i don't believe oh well let's do the coloration first it's black and white and stripey yeah, it's really, really quite a beautiful thing. Um, it's basically mm. got a black background with lots of little white... Well, you could Almost argue it's saddles? actually got... Yeah, it's actually... Maybe it's a white background with black saddles. Um, yes, the ventrals are white. If you're familiar with... I mean, to be honest, again, it looks... The, the body patterning, I say this a lot, but it does... It is reminiscent of a corn snake, just black and white. Yeah, I mean, what, what do we got? We've got like a three to one ratio of black to white. I would say so, yeah. And then it's got a little oval-shaped head, which has a white stripe across the back of it. Hmm. And a big, big eye. I. It's interesting. This is just me me speculating on stuff. But 
That last episode we were discussing the toad and the coloration of the back half of the toad and the way it sort of tapered off to make the head look more triangular, the, you know, the, the body and the, of the toad to make it look more triangular and like a viper head. And then we have a very similar sort of shape on the back of this snake here. And I wonder if there is a relative, you know, of how bright colours are consistently aposomatic. I wonder if triangular heads are more fundamentally aposomatic than perhaps we're thinking and it's and it's just a situation where vipers happen to have that because you do see a lot of these snakes that have a have a sort of coloration taper of the back of the head right mm, it's true i just wonder if that's more universal than we give them credit for i mean i think that's a perfectly apt hypothesis yeah interesting though very interesting it is it does give the head a kind of triangular aspect at a glance yeah with that exactly it's, ch- it's changing that head shape yeah very curious but anyway it's a very beautiful little tiny snake black and white um i mean what could be better it's super cool and tidy. they've called it dryocalamus chith resacari and it's named for nagamula huagi man my pronunciation of this is appalling sorry chith Rasakara, in recognition of his efforts to protect the Canalia Forest Reserve where the paratype was collected. So actually, uh, this individual helped this species quite a lot, which is good. Hmm. Better than just some rando being named for the snake. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, it's got a local name, which I'm not going to butcher, but in English, it's Chith Rasakara's Bridal Snake. He's adorable. It's cool. And yeah, it's a rainforest species of the island's southwestern wet zone quadrant. And that's it. It eats eggs in a weird way, presumably. No one's actually seen this one do it, but yeah. Extrapolating from its nearest, well, one of its near neighbours. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, cool snake. And uh, yeah, I encourage everyone to check out the pictures of that snake eating. I'll put a link in the show notes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, any other business? Um, I could do a bit of shameless self-promotion if you wanted. Please do, Ben. Please if, do. Uh, Tell us about your King Cobra preprint. If people, yeah, if people want to read about King Cobras and their, how their movement is modified by entering agricultural lands, you can now read a preprint on exactly that. Um, I think we'll just put a put a link in the show notes as usual. Uh, what is a preprint? A preprint is a paper that we have put out to the public which has not gone through peer review yet. So this is not a final version of a paper. This is a draft, a draft that we're planning on submitting. But if people wanted to get an early look, they are very welcome to. Big. If anyone's wondering, King Cobras are the gigantic venomous ones. <laughs> yeah, with adorable googly eyes. Yeah, they got silly faces. Um, Uh, yeah that's 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 my current news so i've got so many other business from scott iper some corrections um a while ago we talked about crotalus polystictus and the we were hypothesizing about their sexual dimorphism the mexican lance-headed rattlesnake Mm, okay um which we talked about i'm not sure when it was a while ago but anyway the males were found to have larger heads in something we were talking about and oh yeah yeah 
Yeah, we were saying it could be because of niche partitioning, just because niche partitioning is fun to say, niche partitioning. Um, but actually, Scott reckons it could also be because there's a role of the head in combat where the males try to use their head to push down other males and subdue them. Yes, um, that would, that. to be honest, that does make more sense for the male bias head size, doesn't it? Because other vipers, you see that head size bias being female skewed when it yeah. comes to uh, dietary partitioning yeah. but um scott sent us that correction via a voice message which was nice and uh, i'd encourage anyone else to send us voice messages you can do it on facebook just send us a thought about a reptile or an amphibian and uh maybe we'll mention it in the show are you gonna um, put the audio in the show could could do yeah if it's worthwhile yeah if you send us a little tidbit or an observation or something you're doing which is like involving finding reptiles or amphibians or even the sound of an amphibian wow that would definitely get into the show uh, so yeah, send us some sound bites. That would be cool. <laughs> that I want would, some that sound would, bites. That would be fun. That would be yeah. fun. And even if I you mean, think, oh, I'm not sure, maybe it's not cool enough. It's just do it. Send it. We'll listen well, unless to it. It's, unless, it's a, unless it's a frog that's being silent, or like a snake that's not moving, and it's just yeah. silence. Yeah, yeah. That that, but, uh, wouldn't, that wouldn't be very interesting for people. I think but, that would be. But it would be fun for us. Anything that's audible. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, audible. So, um, oh yeah, and you remember we were talking last episode about the West African gaboon viper being confusingly named uh, Bitis rhinoceros. Yes. yes. Well, apparently it was originally a subspecies of Bitis gabonica. So originally it was the gaboon viper, Bitis gabonica, and then the West African gaboon viper, Bitis rhinoceros, which was, sorry, Bitis gabonica rhinoceros, right? So then... The subspecies Bitis gabonica rhinoceros was elevated. It still was called the West African gaboon viper because that's their distribution. But because Bitis gabonica was obviously taken by Bitis gabonica, they called it Bitis rhinoceros. And that is where the confusion began because obviously there is also the rhinoceros viper. Oh, yeah. I, I, yeah, I mean, that, that it makes sense why it occurred, doesn't it? It's just I didn't, annoying. I didn't, we, <laughs> yeah, we didn't mention it, though, and I didn't realise that. No, I, I, I was, I was vaguely in the back of my head. I remember it. But there were subspecies, species, things. I didn't know it was that way round. Yeah, but Bitis, the rhinoceros viper is Bitis nasicornis. Yes. It's all very confusing, but basically. Well, yeah. it. I mean, it, I, I suppose it's not even. It's not even that confusing when you know it. It's just more, just a little bit awkward and funny. Yeah, funny, funny. <laughs> I think it's funny. I'm livid about it. But, um... <laughs> well, yeah, sorry, but... mate. There's not much That's you right. can really do about it unless you... the whole thing gets reworked. It's all good. So, uh, yeah, I think that's pretty much about the end of it. Um, I think all that remains to be said is thanks for listening. And again, thank you to Alex Santiago and to all of our Patreons yeah, thanks for continuing very to support much. us. Yeah, yeah, means a lot. So yeah, uh, you can get in touch with us through Facebook, and if you want to send audio links, that's probably the best way. We're all, just search for Herpetological Highlights. I don't know. No, you know, Facebook or email. Email would work perfectly well for the audio stuff. Little attachment, little MP4 that's or something. That's true. That's true. Um, but you can record audio directly on the Messenger app. That's just worth worth noting. Oh, obviously, your phone yeah, can okay. do that as well. Yeah. yeah so yeah. <laughs> 
Either way works is this the take home message. And so yeah, or you can email us herphighlights at gmail.com or we're on Twitter at herphighlights. Um, so yeah, thanks for listening. Yeah, thank you for listening.